and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friend Yulia Zhoza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. My colleague Giselle Donnelly from AEI is having technical difficulties, but she might crash halfway through the show. So brace yourselves for that. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Scott Kurinane, Senior Government Relations Advisor at Razum for Ukraine. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Scott, if I may, I would like to start on a somewhat personal note. So we've, we've known each other for a better part of the past decade. I first met you as a very energetic Hill staffer working on transatlantic relations from Capitol Hill. You've moved on to help build various organizations, advise organizations that are working in the transatlantic space, making the case for why Europe matters to the United States. And now you are working with um, Razum for Ukraine, which is a US-based charity NGO founded in the aftermath of the revolution of dignity by Ukrainian expats, if I understand it correctly, and in America with the ambition of, of helping Ukraine become a a flourishing and, and, and prosperous liberal democracy embedded in an in international in the international system. So 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 perhaps we could start by are you telling us a little bit about you know how that career trajectory makes sense from from your perspective and what your current work with Razum entails and what Razum does in broader terms. Well, thank you so much, Dalibor. Um, it's really an honor uh, and a treat for me to be um, to be here today. So. Thank you for having me on. Uh, as you said, uh, I, I've had a great uh, almost 15 years in Washington, D.C., working for many years on Capitol Hill for the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and that was a wonderful experience. And I had the pleasure of uh, helping to cover the Europe and Eurasia portfolio for a couple of years. And uh, when I left the Hill, I knew I wanted to stay working uh, in the transatlantic space. Uh, and Europe was really a place that captured my interest, captured my heart, Uh, in a place I think is very important for the future of American security uh, and American prosperity. And earlier this year, uh, I began working with a fantastic organization called Razum for Ukraine, and and Razum meaning together um, in Ukrainian. Um, And this is an organization which was founded in 2014, so uh, it's been around for a couple years, based in New York, but has really gone through Uh, an incredible change over the past 18 months. Uh, And that all began uh, in February of last year with Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Um, And in short, what happened was there was a huge need, uh, a huge need to help the people of Ukraine respond uh, to Russia's aggression, to Putin's aggression. And uh, over that time, uh, Razum has grown significantly. In fact, Razum has raised um, well over $85 million, mostly from small donors, um, about 170,000 um, small, small dollar donors from all over the U.S. And the vast majority of that has gone uh, for medical relief, um, for, gra- for grants to support grassroots um, NGOs in Ukraine, um, generators, um, warm winter clothing, a, a whole host of, of, of things like that. And together uh, with that um, humanitarian and emergency response work, um, in April of last year, so just 
a little over a year ago, maybe approaching a year and a half ago now, um, Razum decided to also open an office in Washington, D.C. to have a presence um, in the U.S. Capitol um, to do advocacy, to talk about why Ukraine's victory is important, and to educate the American public, to educate policymakers, uh, and to have a voice, uh, a Ukrainian-American voice in Washington, uh, pushing and talking about how the U.S. you know can and should help Ukraine, and how that relates uh, to America's own prosperity and security. And so, the vast majority of what Rosman does is focused on Ukraine. Uh, we have an office in Kiev. Uh, we have a warehouse there that delivers supplies of all kinds, responding to to the needs on the ground. A small portion of Rosman I work in is focused on advocacy, and so I spend much of my time talking to people on Capitol Hill uh, and working with my colleagues um, who deal with uh, talking to the press or who work with uh, community groups all across the U.S. Who, who want to rally support for the Ukrainian cause. And so I feel incredibly lucky to be working with a great organization and to be working on Ukraine, um, which I, I think I can say for those of us who are involved in transatlantic relations and who care about foreign policy, um, Ukraine is is the issue. It is the issue of the moment. It's the overriding challenge of our time. And, and I, I'm so honored to be able to hopefully contribute in some small way um, to helping to helping make that better and to helping um, Ukraine survive um, and come out of this horrible experience, you know, better if that's possible. Well, thank you for that. And, and um, I'm heartened to hear that because it's great to hear that others feel the same way we do on the Eastern Front podcast, that it's a privilege and an honor to be working in and for Ukraine in one way or another and, and trying to chip in and making a difference here. And so um, I know we are planning, and uh, I'll get to that in a second, talk, um, talking about the hill here and how your work is going. And maybe one way to ease into that is to look at the transatlantic relations overall, um, kind of also from the perspective from Congress here, because We've heard and we talked on this podcast a lot over the last few months about the voices that are increasing and will increase on the Hill saying that Europeans aren't doing enough and that they should be more responsible for their own security and they should take leadership even when it comes to Ukraine. And I believe just today, September 7th, um, we have data coming out that shows that now EU plus UK and Norway have offered more aid, uh, military aid to Ukraine than the United States. And data is also coming out today for the first time that the United States is not anymore in the top 10 when it comes to aid overall for Ukraine in comparison to the GDP. And so if you are, I'm sure you will use this data too, and you're talking points on the Hill, but if you are to look back um, over the last few months and into what it, um, into the data today, where does that leave us in the conversation that we're having, particularly in Congress, about how transatlantic relations are going from both sides of the aisle, from the Democrats and from the Republicans? Is that actually helping or are we so overwhelmed, particularly on the GOP side, by populism that actual data 
um, is not going to help the cause of transatlantic security. Big question. Um, I saw that data as well, and it definitely helps. I, I, you know, taking a slightly longer perspective, uh, I would say there's always been complaints on Capitol Hill about Europe, about the EU, about transatlanticism, probably going back decades. I'm not sure there's ever been a time when there's been you know, no complaints. Um, it's sort of one of those things that is, is always there in, in, in some form. So, so that's not, not terribly new. Um, and, and I've made the point, I, you know, before, and I've made it for, for several years now, that, you know, sometimes on Capitol Hill, you know, there are those voices that respond to actual problems, and there are those voices that, you know, maybe be well-meaning but respond to problems that they imagine or think exist or to impressions. So there's always been a, you know, a very, you know, mixed conversation on Capitol Hill um, about Europe. But I think it's fair to say that in general, there has been a push for Europe to do more. And usually you hear that um, solidified around the NATO 2%, 2% benchmark. And certainly, I think in recent years, um, as more of the U.S. geopolitical focus has moved to the Indo-Pacific, there's also been increasing calls for Europe and the EU to do more to help the U.S. um, uh, in in that sector. And here I I point to um, export controls on, on, say, uh, microchips as as an example, where there's been calls for Europe and the U.S. to be more aligned on those policy areas. When it comes to Ukraine, I think the data is actually pretty good in terms of Europe is stepping up to not only take in refugees and displaced persons um, from Ukraine, but stepping up on economic support and stepping up on weapons, um, which, you know, there's always things that can be done better. um, And that's true for the U.S., it's true for for Europe. But I think in general, um, Europe has come a long way. And you remember back to early last year when when Germany, I think, was going to send helmets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some some of the starting points, you know, of this conversation from early last year, the bar was pretty pretty darn low. <laughs> um, and you know, and and there's still there's still room to improve. But looking at what Europe has done, um, stepping up on on air defense, stepping up on F-16s, there there's a lot of things there that I think European governments and countries can be very proud of. And it's certainly something that we point to very often, because I think there is a sense in some quarters of Capitol Hill that the U.S. is going it alone, that it's only the U.S. helping Ukraine. And that's certainly not the case. Um, And so we we point to that quite often to to show that it's not just uh, an American effort or an American project, but this is really a transatlantic project uh, to push back on Russia's aggression and to see that Ukraine achieves victory. Uh, it's something that, that we all have an interest in. Um, and I, I think the, the data and the examples very clearly bear that out. So many interesting sort of threads in, in what you put on the table. Um, we certainly struggle on the podcast and, and this perennial conversation we'll have probably until the war is over, whether you know, the glass is half full or half empty, especially when it comes to, to Europe's role. Your points are well taken at the same time. You know, countries that keep buying Russian oil. There hasn't been that much that has come out of the Zeitenwende thus far. It's true that Europe starts from a very low base. There are some sort of objective constraints that 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 can't just be wished away. Like to my mind, that's sort of very much an open question of 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 
whether you know we see Europe as doing not enough or or just enough. But but one one thing I want to sort of focus on for a few minutes is is this question of politics, which is distinct from 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 the sort of substantive conversation we can have about you know Europeans doing enough or 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 not enough. So so you could make the argument that some years ago you know, politics would stop at the water's edge, that an issue like Ukraine would be an issue that would command a high level of bipartisan support, and there would be a sense of committee and unity in the in the, in the the political class. And, and that still exists to some extent, but to a much lesser extent than than before. And, and one thing that I believe has happened is, is that Ukraine has become one of those sort of cultural political markers for partisanship in, in certain quarters in a way that's impervious to any kind of substantive arguments you might want to make. And and my question to you, I suppose, is, you know, if, if that's the situation um, and if it's harder to sustain uh, Ukraine as a bipartisan issue, then why doesn't the administration and the Democrats in Congress just treat it as a partisan issue and try to, you know, make as good a job at it as they can, having in mind that they'll face an election, uh, several elections next year? You know, it would be in President Biden's political interest, I would imagine, that Ukraine wins, that it retakes its territory by, you know, November 2nd or, or 3rd next next year. And and yet he is not acting accordingly. And, and, and I don't see the same degree of sort of urgency among um, congressional Democrats. Do you have an explanation for that political puzzle? Yes, it's certainly one of our greatest priorities at, at Rosam to see Ukraine to continue to be a bipartisan interest. It is in the national interest of the U.S., to see Ukraine win, and we very much believe that, and that's at the core of uh, of what we do. I'd say from my personal experience, um, I began to see Ukraine-Russia policy kind of seep into domestic politics, obviously, during the Trump years. Um, this is really, you know, because it, you know, not only we had the famous Helsinki press conference that eventually led to um, Trump's first impeachment. And, and I saw on the Hill where you know, before, you know, Russia-Ukraine policy, you know, really was not a good indicator of, of a partisan stance. Um, if you just told me someone's thoughts on Russia, it'd be very hard to tell if they were Republican or Democrat. But then, you know, over the course of the last administration in the last five years or so, that began to change. And, and what you thought about Zelensky or Putin or Russia or Ukraine began to be sort of a stand-in. Um, for where you stood in other on other things um, like Trump or the impeachment or your your partisan standing and and that's that slide you know isn't complete but we're beginning to to, to go to go in in that in that direction and so we're very much pushing to have members of Congress to have media to have the public understand talk about and view Ukraine uh, through the lens of national policy and not partisanship um, but that's very difficult. Um, and that remains difficult um, for several reasons. And probably first and foremost um, is that Donald Trump, who still remains an incredibly uh, popular figure in the Republican Party, continues to take a drastically different perspective on the conflict, as well as uh, the fact that the two, if not three, leading candidates in the Republican primary continue to take difficult views on, on, on Ukraine. And, and even though a number of candidates, um, you know, Pence, Nikki, Chris Christie, you know, have, have very good have very good views on Ukraine, but they're unfortunately not, not leading the polls. 
And, and what I think is going to happen over the coming months is it's very hard for members of Congress to break with the leading candidate or candidates to be their party's nominee um, for the White House. And so there is sort of a pull there, you know, a center of gravity that, 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 will, that will pull members of Congress in that direction. Do you think um, things will actually get worse in the coming months? On the Republican side, well, I certainly hope not, and and I, I'm I'm still somewhat optimistic because I, I think, in general, most voters, most Republicans, are directionally pro-Ukraine. You know, Putin is very unpopular. Zelensky is very popular. Ukraine, most people I think know at their gut level, Ukraine is the victim. Uh, Russia is committing genocide. Russia is doing incredibly cruel and and gruesome things, um, like the, um, the, the the kidnapping of Ukrainian children. Um, that's not very popular. I think at their gut level, most people know that's not what America is about, and we don't want, you know, to condone that. In fact, we want very much to help uh, the victims defend themselves and to retake what is rightfully theirs. So I think both at the public level at the level of voters and member of Congress, most people, including most Republicans, are for Ukraine. They're in Ukraine's corner. And I think that that's, that's true from the polling data. I think that's also true just from the conversations I have on, on, on Capitol Hill. Um, so so I, I, think, I think that the basic fundamentals of, of the conversation work very well for Ukraine and not so well for Putin. But that gets a little bit complicated because you do have um, these kind of cross-cutting trends. And unfortunately, there is uh, a challenge of there are information bubbles uh, inside the electorate and even inside our political elites, um, where unfortunately, um, true information doesn't always penetrate. And sometimes conspiracy theories come out or things that are half true or things that really aren't that important become really, really inflated. And, and so, so sometimes there can be these unfortunate misunderstandings or confusions or, or people choose to fixate on certain things. And certainly I, I would say it's a thing where we encourage members of Congress um, and even if there is some pushback uh, in terms of, of, on social media or, or maybe there's a segment on Tucker Carlson and that then produces um, some angry phone calls to a member of Congress. You know, certainly our advocacy is, is to those offices, to those members, you know, is, is to stay focused on helping Ukraine uh, achieve victory. And that a few loud voices is not indicative or representative of the majority of people and the majority of voters, including in the Republican Party, who don't want to see Vladimir Putin have a victory. Because um, I, I think I think it's not uh, it's not a hard case to make that we are seeing this alliance uh, and these these elements of cooperation between Russia and Iran, you know, drone technology being an obvious one, you know, cooperation between North Korea and Russia on ammunition, you know, cooperation between uh, Russia and China, you know, the, the all, all of the authoritarian governments that oppose the U.S that harm our national interests, they all see a convergence in their interests are served if Putin wins. They all want to see Ukraine lose. 
and, and even if even if you're not sure about Ukraine or you don't know all the details, I think even just seeing that, you know, who who is on Putin's side? Tehran, Beijing, Pyongyang, you know, these are not our friends, and 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 if they want Putin to win, that should be a clue to us that we probably want the opposite to happen. So in general, you know, it, it's. It's a long, it's a long answer, but to, to come back to your point, you know, there is an element of the potential for this to become a partisan issue. But I think that would be very unfortunate, and it certainly wouldn't serve the U.S. national interest, and it certainly wouldn't help Ukraine. Yeah, you don't need to do any convincing on our side. Our audience is is uh, fully on board with that. But I, I want to ask you a little bit about the polls. Um, because particularly about the CNN um, or the poll for CNN, the survey um, for CNN for the summer, because that really sent shivers um, down the spine of many, um, especially directly on the Eastern Front, but, um, but, but across Europe too. And if I'm not mistaken, um, I'm looking now at an article that was uh, th- that is quoting that from The Hill a few days ago, um, saying 71% of Republicans are opposing additional funding um, for Ukraine. And it, I think it's worth separating here or trying to uh, make sense of the additional funding, how that is being politicized in itself, to what extent these numbers and from poll to poll, from survey to survey, lower numbers in support on either side, but particularly on the GOP side, um, are not helping the cause and whether that's nudging into the same direction that Dalibor was asking about earlier, if through propaganda from outside, from Russia's allies and Russia directly, or through political elites in the GOP um, manipulating with their statements, we shouldn't be worrying about a downward trend of popular support on the Republican side in the months to come, building up to the election. So, so polls, polls can be a tricky thing, and especially in foreign policy. I, I think what we've seen in general is that most people, uh, even if they were following the war closely during sort of the height of the invasion um, last February and last March, most people are not following the news um, that closely. And I think in general, most people don't have very fixed views uh, on foreign policy. And when it comes to polling about Ukraine, what I've seen is that those levels of support move quite a bit when you add context. And when you add in um, the context of like, you know, for the equivalent of 3% of our annual Defense Department budget, we have helped Ukraine destroy something on the order of 50% 50% of the capacity of the Russian land army? Or do you know with this support, um, Ukraine has been able to recapture, I'll make up a number, but say 60% of the territory that, that Russia initially claimed earlier last year. And when, when you add in context, uh, we see voters of all stripes, including Republican voters, become much more in favor. I can also add there, also when you add in the context of the U.S. not going alone, but if you, if you ask that same question and said, did you know that, that European uh, governments are spending as much, if not more, than the U.S. 
to support Ukraine, then what do you think? And when you, when you add context and add information, those numbers move quite dramatically. And the other element to add in there to understand is that even of people who have firm views on Ukraine, uh, the number of voters who say Ukraine is an issue in which they are going to decide their vote on remains very low. And so even if there is an element of Republican, the Republican base that is very firm in opposing Ukraine, they say issues like the economy or healthcare or immigration are far more important to them. And that's actually what they're deciding their vote on, not on Ukraine. So, you know, so I, 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 I take your point on the polls, um, but I, I think when you add context, it's not, it's not nearly as dramatic or as dire as maybe some of those headlines uh, make it appear as. So, so actually, um, my original framing, I suppose, was 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 somewhat more subversive than than the question that Julia asked in the sense that I have sort of taken as a given that there is this sort of dynamic on the on the Republican right, which we might try to reverse. And you're doing a great job, you know, trying to trying to reverse. But let's just assume that it sort of drifts in that direction. And then the question is for the president and for the democratic part of of the of the two uh, legislative chambers to act accordingly. And uh, your point about opinion polls is well taken. I think, you know, support for, for Ukraine has sort of ebbed and flowed. And, and I think as a general pattern, people like winners, whenever there are successes on the battlefield, it energizes the support for Ukraine. When it feels like, you know, weeks and months have gone on and nothing happened on the battlefield, people sort of get tired and want to move on. That's a, that's a very common pattern. So, 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 so to me, I mean, the rational, politically rational thing for President Biden and Democrats in Congress to do is to, is to go big. They can say to the Republicans, okay, you want to side with Putin? Be our guests. And now we are going to, A, you know, rhetorically make the case for why Ukraine matters, but more importantly, we are going to throw everything at the problem. There are thousands of you know abrams tanks rotting somewhere in storage there are you know f-16s that are not going to be used for anything like like you know, there, there are things that i think you know democrats and the administration could do that they are not currently doing uh, they could pass additional aid packages maybe with narrower margins of support uh but but the, you know those those additional aid packages would still would still get through congress and and then by november next year the president could say Look, I've delivered a Ukrainian victory. Ukraine is in control of its territory, and I think that would be a great thing to to sell to the American people, as opposed to a situation in which the war is kind of inconclusive by November next year. He will have spent, you know, hundred something billion dollars and basically handed Republicans a stick to to hit him over the head with. Does that make sense? It, it does, um, and I, I I fully agree. And I I would say. You know, first, speaking of the administration, I think the first thing, you know, as an American, you know, to say is, you know, I'm thankful to the administration for what they have done on Ukraine. It's not a small thing, and, and I recognize that. Um, but for them, and I think for the president, it, it's, there's two, two topics or, or, or two, two interests, that, and there's some tension between them. And, and certainly from a domestic political perspective, what you described makes sense. Um, but at the NSC in the White House, there is a tension there 
with a fear of escalation. Uh, and, and right now, I think it would be fair to say we don't have much of a Russia policy. And the closest thing we have to a Russia policy is our Ukraine policy. Hmm. Amen to and, that. <laughs> and and there there is a, a, a concern, and I might argue an over-concern, but there is a concern um, about about escalation. And I and you've, you've seen this in this cycle, even going back before the current administration, even going back to the Obama years, about, you know, do we send javelins to Ukraine? You know, I remember, you know, that was a question for years um, where we wouldn't do that. Um, you know, and then we went through this cycle, uh, you know, with, with uh, HIMARS, um, with tanks, um, now with F-16s, um, also kind of a policy sense, like, you know, are we okay with Ukraine striking targets inside Russia? How do we, how do we, do we, do we support that? Do we not support that? Do we let Western supplied weapons be used? You know, so we, we go through this cycle where um, where things are impossible. We talk for six six months for some period of time, you know, chew on it, decide, yeah, we can probably do that. We can send the HIMARS, we can send the Abrams, we can send the F-16s. It, it's not going to cause World War III to break out. And then, and then we do it, but we do it kind of in piecemeal, and we do it only after a lot of time has been spent and in, in arguably a lot of lives have been spent in the interim. And so I think we're, we're still sort of stuck in this, and, and perhaps maybe we're working through the F-16 question now. I think the next thing is attackums, and I'm fully confident Ukraine will get attackums, and I think we're just repeating the same cycle. Um, and... You know, and, and maybe also in a policy sense, where we're kind of working through that same that same cycle of what to do with the frozen Russian state assets, and, and so um, so I think for in the mind of the, of the president in the White House, there's both this domestic political context they're operating in, but also this fear of escalation and trying to find you know a, a policy line that they're comfortable with that allows Ukraine to do the things we want Ukraine to do, but also signals or sends some message um, to Moscow. And so there's a couple couple interests there that, that they're juggling, and we can kind of talk about you know which one of those they put more emphasis on and how they make those judgments. But, but th- I, think, I think that that tension sort of explains the sometimes halting or stilted policy process. And I think it also kind of explains the, the line that you know I have some frustration with that is, um, the U.S. is with Ukraine for as long as it takes, um, which I think is not terribly descriptive. And I, I much prefer uh, something about we're going to help Ukraine achieve victory and do it quickly and in the war quickly by winning. Uh, I, I think that's a much more clear um, and attractive policy line, um, and it's certainly something that we advocate for the administration to move a little closer to that kind of language as opposed to their current line. Um, it's got. It's like you've been here on every episode for the last year or so, um, because we keep repeating the same things um, over and over again, including the fear of escalation, including the issue about the lack of of a clear definition. Lithuania is now pushing uh, pushing until victory. Um, I I hope this will get embraced. So then, in that vein, a twofold question focused on the Hill support um, for Ukraine. The first part is there was an initiative at the beginning of the summer, a legislative initiative, at least rumors of that. I think I've seen um, I've seen them in the Hill and, and beyond 
um, with both sides of the aisle arguing, trying to push the White House to articulate what is it that we're looking that that we're supporting Ukraine for um, to articulate this kind of language? Do you know where we are with this, and is it worth um, is it worth following, pursuing um, uh, into the fall and into the winter? And the second part, the second question to that is um, the aid packages. We've seen just today a new aid package coming out after a summer of, frankly, fear that this is. Um, that um, about the new drawdown essentially, and so looking into the next twelve months or so until elections, and into this dynamic that you're describing within the Republicans, but also within the Democrats and within the White House and the NSC, where do you see the flow? of aid packages going? Do you see a risk of it slowing down and uh, being reduced in quantity in U.S. dollars over time with every month? Um, do you see it most likely with the current dynamics that you're describing um, being maintained um, throughout the next year, which would enable Ukraine to fight on, but not to victory? Um, or do you see actually that there is a significant chance um, of um, of this rhythm increasing depending on how much what Dalibor was referring to, um, how much victory we can actually count um, uh, on the Ukrainian battlefield, which of course is a very unfair equation, but unfortunately, something that we're dealing with. So where do you see this going? Two great questions. Um, on, on the first question about um, the vision or plan for uh, where U.S. policy is going, yes, this has been debated on Capitol Hill um, since the spring. Uh, we also saw it debated on the House side um, during the recent um, passage of the National Defense Authorization Act. That debate, that demand for more detail from the executive branch is definitely there. Um, and one one piece of legislation I, I can point you to um, where this is sort of being expressed is HRES 332 on the House side, uh, a, a resolution titled Expressing the Sense uh, of the House of Representatives on Ukrainian Victory, which has nearly 30 co-sponsors. Um, and so there there is a desire for more details from the executive branch. I think we all know Congress is, you know, willing to to spend money when they want to, when they understand what it's for and what it's trying to achieve. And I, I think, you know, the administration has answered those questions in some ways, but not in others. And I think I think there is space for the administration to make that case more publicly and more clearly. On your second question about where is U.S. aid going? That's really the big question at the moment. Over over August, um, the administration put out a supplemental request for about $24 billion uh, for Ukraine. And right now, the Congress is coming up on the end of the fiscal year at the end of September, and there is the possibility of there being a shutdown. And so right now, over the next um, three weeks, Congress is going to work um, to avoid a shutdown, uh, possibly uh, by passing a continuing resolution. There is also a need uh, for Congress to pass the 12 individual appropriations bills, and this was part of the debt limit um, deal that was signed 
that was agreed upon earlier this year. And if all 12 individual bills aren't passed into law by January, then there's some automatic spending cuts that come into play. So Congress has a couple big deadlines coming up. And in addition to that, there is this supplemental request that is uh, an addition above the top line spending numbers that were agreed to as part of the debt deal. The total package is about 40 billion with 24 being for Ukraine. Uh, Senator uh, Mitch McConnell has said the Senate will vote on that um, before the month is over. And I think the most likely scenario is probably the supplemental is attached to the CR and they're passed together as a package, but we don't know. And the next three weeks will be a lot of politicking, a lot of statements, a lot of negotiating to see how we get there. Because of course, it's not only a negotiation between Congress and the White House, it's a negotiation between Senate and House Republicans, and it's also a negotiation between Republican leadership in the House, uh, Kevin McCarthy, with the Freedom Caucus and with the more conservative wing uh, of the House Caucus. So there's a lot of competing interests and competing demands. So I'm not sure what will happen. I'm very confident support for Ukraine will continue this year and into next year. But I think it probably will become increasingly difficult and it will be a fight. And it will be a fight if for no other reason than uh, this conversation uh, will not be about Ukraine but it will be about spending. It will be about priorities. And it will become consumed into the presidential campaign. And I, I think we'll probably you know, see some, some arguments around the lines of, you know, how can you vote to spend more money on Ukraine when we, don't, we haven't secured the southern border? And we'll kind of see these kind of like trade-off questions or questions of priorities. And, and of course, we can do both. But that's not the point. It'll, it'll be drawn into these sort of political conversations that are divorced from events in Europe um, and divorced from the actual you know, accounting reality, but will have to exist and play out in those political information bubbles. So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not too terribly worried looking at the future, but it will be a fight. It probably will be increasingly messy, but I, I do have faith in the end there are enough people of goodwill and intelligence in the executive branch on Capitol Hill that they know letting Vladimir Putin have a victory is not good. You know, it's not good politically, and it's not good in a national security sense. Um, and and I, I, think that is, I think that is so glaringly obvious that even if it's messy and we take a really roundabout way getting there, we will still get to a place where we decide Ukrainian victory is is the right choice and is good for us. Scott, before we let you go, quick question about Razum. So I assume most of our listeners are firmly on Ukraine's side. I mean, there must still be some isola- isolationists who have listened through the 100 plus episodes out of masochism, but I think they are in the minority. So, so how can our listeners uh, get in touch with Razum? What resources do you have for people who want to advocate for Ukraine's cause? And finally, how can you know people of goodwill help Razum or help the Ukrainian cause more broadly? Well, thank you for that opportunity to uh, to give a little a little plug for Razum. I appreciate that. Um, you know, first and foremost, you can go to the Razum's website, razumforukraine.org, um, and there on the advocacy page, um, we put out talking points 
and messaging guidelines for people who might want to call or write their member of Congress. And Rosam is also a member of, of the American Coalition for Ukraine, a coalition of, at this point, probably 70-plus organizations, some Ukrainian-American, but not exclusively. It includes Syrian-American, uh, Persian-American, Baltic-American, Taiwanese-American organizations um, who all come together to support Ukraine. And as part of that effort, uh, we are organizing um, a fly-in day to Capitol Hill at the end of October, October 22nd through 24th. Um, and so it's partially advocacy training, partially uh, a mini-conference to learn about Ukraine, and then a day in Capitol Hill to speak to your member uh, of Congress about why Ukraine is important. So those who want to help virtually, uh, please check out our website, and there's directions there to call or write member of Congress. Uh, or if you feel like coming to Washington, D.C. in October, We'd love to have people from all over the U.S. Uh, come and join our fly-in day and talk to a member of Congress in person about why supporting Ukraine matters to you and matters to where you live. Scott Coordinate, thank you so much. From me, Dalibu Rohaj, and... Yulia Zosa. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter, or platform formerly known as Twitter, using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes for more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.